not often, just sometimes. So last week, we had the whole story of David and Goliath. And it is around the fact that the Israelites were confronting the Philistines. They were being deeply embarrassed, which means that they allowed their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be embarrassed in the eyes of others because they didn't trust God. And Saul sends for young David, and um, David says that he wants to go out and confront this Goliath, which seems like a joke, right? But David trusts God. Remember all the places I said, underline here, underline there, underline. It's, those were all the spots where, where David trusted God. This, this will be God's victory, David says. And sure enough, David, David felled the great giant Goliath and then cut off his head and brought it, back to, <laughs> brought it back to Saul, brought it back to town. So we now come to chapter 18 in 1 Samuel, okay? And uh, I'm just going to plunge in. So, all right, everybody with me? After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan is the prince. He is the successor to the throne. He is the first in line. He is the Prince William. <laughs> Isn't Prince William the first in line behind Charles now? Yes, he is the Prince William of this family. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. So right there, in that one sentence, a whole stage is set. Jonathan, I don't know, have you ever had a friend who you felt was like a soulmate? A friend who was just, you were just so close. And, and it was, um, I know uh, my brother Steve's probably had one soulmate like that in his life. And his soulmate was a man named Gary Dennison, who was Patty's first husband. He died of cancer at 37. That's how Patty and I came to be, through my brother Steve. Um, uh, and they, Steve and Gary were, were soulmates like this. And um, what I want you to pay attention to going forward is that Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself and I want you to keep an eye on how reciprocated that is. How reciprocated it is, okay? He loved David as he loved himself. Wow, that's powerful. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to home to his family. So David is now a permanent part of the royal court in Israel. He's a permanent member of the king's retinue in, in Israel. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now this covenant would be, that's, that's kind of a powerful word. A covenant is um, a bond. It's a bond expressed, sometimes in writing, doesn't have to be in writing, but, it, but it's a it's, it, it, it's, it's a bond of promise, it's a bond of future, it's a bond of, of um, commitment, one person to another. 
and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. You see? So Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So what is all that stuff that, that Jonathan is wearing? That's prince stuff. Right? That's, that's kingly stuff. That is the stuff the son of the king wears. He takes off his robe, he takes off his tunic, he takes off all of these things that are signifiers of Jonathan being the successor to Saul and Jonathan gives them to David. Now does Jonathan know about Samuel coming to see Jesse and his eight sons in Bethlehem? No reason to think so. The only people who know are Samuel, Jesse, the eight sons, and David. But Jonathan, you know, Jonathan, some people have a sixth sense. They can see things, they understand things. And Jonathan loves David, he is committed to David, um, and that commitment will be expressed in very concrete ways. And this is the first. And it's very important to see this taking off of the robe and the tunic and the sword and all of that as these royal symbols basically being given from Jonathan to whom? God's anointed, David. Okay. Verse 5. Any thoughts about that? Questions or anything? Whatever mission... Jo Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So if you were to pull David aside and ask him, well David, how do you account for the fact that every time Saul sent you out on a mission, you are enormously successful? What do you think David would say? God's with him. I mean, that's, that's the story of David and Goliath. David didn't see that you know, it was his own might of arms and all the rest of it that brought down Goliath. It's because God was with him. He trusted God. It was God's victory. And so now God is with David. He is God's anointed. When the men were, verse 6, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, as in Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. This is a big victory parade, right? Right, big day. With joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres and they've got all, they're making music and they're celebrating and they're dancing and they're singing because this great victory has won, won over the Philistines by the defeat of Goliath. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. And David, his tens of thousands. Ooh. I don't have to tell you all what that is setting up, right? Right? Saul is the big cheese. The big cheese wants to be recognized as the big cheese. David's not the big cheese. Oh, you know that I had to eat at Saul. The women, oh, yay, Saul. Yay, 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 David! <laughs> right? Oh, I'm going to lose it again today. Okay, so verse 8. Saul was very angry. You bet he was angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. 
Yeah. Such nice words. I, want, I don't know what the Hebrew is here, but you know, oftentimes, oftentimes, sometimes, in the Hebrew, underneath the English, it's pretty crude and rough and direct. And then it gets kind of cleaned up by the translators because they don't want to offend gentle Christian ears. You know? <laughs> really? I'm, yeah, that's how it is. So this might be one of those as well because he is not happy. They have credited David with tens of thousands, Saul thought. But me? With only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Oh, what irony there is in that. David's already got the kingdom. People don't know it yet. It hasn't happened yet. But it is his. Oh, there's a teaching moment here. It's his. You ready, Patty? I'm ready. Already. But not yet. And not yet. Exactly. <laughs> this is something I teach on a great deal. Kim Myers was asking me this morning for a recommendation about a book of theology to read. Um, and so I recommended her a book by a man named Gordon Fee, who wrote a book. It's a, lay, it's a, it's a book for lay people called Paul the Spirit and the People of God. I hope. That's what I told her. So, so in this book, he's, uh, Gordon Fee, who is, when he wrote the book, he was already close to retirement. He, but he began his work for God as a local pa as a pastor. And he said, if I could go back to those days and those churches, this is what I would preach time and time again, that the kingdom of God has come already and not yet. It is the only way to make sense of your New Testament that the kingdom of God is both present and coming. And I often come up, try to come up with examples, okay? Things to help people grasp that such a thing is really possible. Coming, present and coming, already and not yet. Because if it isn't, then Jesus isn't telling the truth. Because what's the first words he says in the Gospel of Mark? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And yet, the, the kingdom of God arrives in its fullness with what? His resurrection. Okay? So, already and not yet. So, the kingdom of God is with us today, in truth, in reality, and not yet. So, marriage was an example I used a lot. I'm old enough to remember days when people viewed marriage this way. That when the couple stood before the pastor or priest and got married and were pronounced, I do, and they said, I do, they were married. But they weren't married until that marriage was consummated in the marriage bed. Okay. That is the basis, basically, for, for Roman Catholic annulments at one time. The marriage doesn't really exist. It, yes, it exists when the ideas are said, but it is fully manifest when the marriage union is consummated. Gordon Fee had some of his own examples. This is a great example. The kingdom is David's. He's been anointed king of Israel already, but is is he, is he living the life of the king? No. Does everybody see it? No. 
Is it manifest, which means made visible to people? No. But it's still the reality. Yes? David knows all this, right? What does David really know? That is such a good question. And I think, what does David really know? He, he knows what happened at his house when they called him in and Samuel anointed him. Is the full weight of it with him, the deep knowledge that the writer here is unfolding for us? I think probably not. I think there's God, we gotta leave David some ambiguity here around all of this. I mean, lots of times this comes up time and again. We have the ink on the page and we kind of think that everybody way back then has the same understanding that we had, that we get from the page. But they probably don't. And I think David probably doesn't. He knows something important. How old was he? See, that's a good question. We know he's a young man. He was young enough to be, he's the youngest of Jesse's sons. He was young enough to be the one left out tending the sheep in the backyard. Not really the backyard, but you get my drift, okay? So how old is he? I don't know, people don't agree. 20, 19, not 13 or 12, but young. There will be a long time yet before David is fully installed as the king of the United Tribes. That doesn't even happen in 1 Samuel. You've got to go to 2 Samuel to get, to get there. So what does David know? We, you know, just look for clues. And I would submit um, right now for David, he doesn't grasp much of that. That, that, that's, that would be my, my bet. So, good question though. Unanswerable, but <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> yes. In the prior verses, when the, uh, Jonathan gives him his guard, is it, we, we see it as a signifier, right? A little signpost to this succession changing, but it, in the moment, what could it be? An expression of deep friendship. Well, we know we know what's coming. We indeed know what's happened. Jonathan doesn't know what's happened, right? Jonathan doesn't know about, about this. So those are all good questions. And now Saul is not happy, and look at verse 9. Well, from that time on, Saul kept his eye on David. Well, verse 10, the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Now, we've run into this before. And I believe that the way to understand this is that Saul, having been obedient, having been disobedient, having rebelled against God's authority, has placed himself further and further from God. And the spiritual dimension of this is the one I think we need to keep in view. That as he goes further and further from God, he is more and more cut off from God, and what he experiences are symptoms that a psychologist today might see as depression or something, right? But if we only see it in the way we see it in 2023, it's easy to leave, out the, to leave out the spiritual dimension to it. And that's not, the, that's not the way to approach your Bible. Your Bible is here because it's filled with theology. Big moments, little moments, all the rest. And so 
So it is that relationship with God, that spiritual dimension, that needs to be in, in view. But what we know is that the next day, Saul begins to sink again. God. Yes? Isn't it a bit of an oxymoron to say an evil spirit from God? Well, not for the ancients, not for ancient people, okay? For you and me, yes. You know, did, so what is, so if we were to read this in light of Jesus, how would we understand this? And I would say it is the effect of his withdrawing from God is plunging him deeper and deeper into spiritual darkness. So this is a thousand years before Jesus, right? So even what the ancient um, Israelites would have written here, or what they were, would have read, they can't read it in the light of Jesus. We can read it in the light of Jesus. We should read it in the light of Jesus. Okay? Um, for the ancients, virtually everything that happened to them was from God, good or bad. You, you leave here and you have a wreck in your car. Why did you have that wreck? Was it? No, no. <laughs> No, no, see, the, the ancients wouldn't say that. Say, oh, I made the gods angry today. Look what happened. You know, you get a winning lottery ticket. Why? Oh, my gosh, the gods are pleased with me today. Not just the Jews, but, you know, <laughs> it's a silly movie. Oh, what is the name of it? Jason and the Argonauts. Anybody remember that from like 1963? Some of the hokiest special effects ever to appear on the big screen. But it depicted the pagan world well in that, in the movie, the gods are up on Mount Olympus and there's this like this big hole in the clouds where they can look down at the people and they're all the little ants down there and they just kind of play with them. <laughs> they just kind of play with them, sure, sure. If, if you know, if um, Cicero wrote about this, if, if you're an ancient, you're gonna spend a lot of your time just trying to stay out of the way of the gods. So how they saw things, how they wrote things, we need to read and interpret in light of Jesus, that's all. And that's why I think we shouldn't, we don't, I don't think we have to see that God reached down to smite Saul. I don't think that's consistent with even the Old Testament, much less the New. We read it in the light of Jesus, but it's saying something to us about the spiritual nature of Saul's problem. It's not just psychology. Not just the, there's a spiritual dimension to it that is driving this thing because he was disobedient to God and God's hand had been with him and then God's hand was, was withdrawn. Okay. So anyway, so now Saul is sinking and he was prophesying in his house. Now that prophesying, if you and I saw it, I think based upon what we find in the Old Testament is he would look half crazy. Going around, I'm in the spirit, and it's saying all kinds of things and this and that. It, it's a picture, how would we say it today? It's a picture of a man losing his mind, okay? Which is probably not far wrong because we do have minds and hearts and the rest of it. And if we are, if we are removing ourselves from God, if we're, because God doesn't move, right? I mean, if you wake up one day and you feel really distant from God, who do you think went somewhere? God or you? You went somewhere. You 
moved yourself further from God. God didn't go anywhere. So um, that's, what, that's what Saul has done. And he was prophesying in his house while David was playing the liar as he usually did. Remember, that's why he went in the first place was to bring calm and the rest of it. Um, okay. Well, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it. Saying to himself, I'm going to pin David right to that wall. Wow. Wow. Imagine if you're David. You're in, you're playing your little, you know, little little thing here. Right? You're playing, you're playing your, your little lyre, little, little mini harp. I don't know what, uh, yeah, right. So anyway, and then all of a sudden, the king has this spear and he throws it right at me to kill me. Why does Saul want to kill him? He's jealous. Do you, to go back to the question here, do you think Saul has some idea about what's happening? Some, maybe he doesn't, maybe he would have trouble articulating it. But he's fearful of David. Now, I think probably because of more than the story of David and Goliath, because Saul does know that God has taken his kingdom from him. It hadn't happened in reality. It's happened already, but not yet. You're right? There we go. I love that. I have new example right here from the Bible. That's totally awesome. He sees the people are behind David. The people are behind David. That would make any king mad, right? But how's it written? The guy is walking around the house. He's prophesying. I don't know saying all kind of things, that he's got this spear in his hand, and David is playing the liar furiously, trying to calm the king down, and then, whoop! The king hurls a spear at David. And what does it say? David eluded him how many times? Twice! Twice. <laughs> you got to wonder why David would ever go back again. I mean, really, but in any event. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Because Yahweh was with David, but had departed from Saul. Now, what's the biggest clue that Saul has that God is with David? His the, the fact that David could defeat Goliath. I think it's the fact that David could defeat the Goliath, right? Everybody, not David did it. David did it. David did it. And so, if you're Saul, you know that God has, God has taken his hand away from you. You know that God has taken your kingdom away from you. And now you have this young man, maybe 20, who defeated the great Goliath, this great massive Philistine, and did it in the name of God, invoked many, several times in the course of that story. And so if you're Saul, I think Saul, it's not hard, it's not a stretch to see that Saul sees God with David and knows that God's hand has departed from him. I'm being asked, does Saul know that Jonathan is making this covenant with David? No, not an indication yet. But 
we don't have any indication that he does, right? So good question. Don't know. I guess we'll have to see what comes of all of this. All these pieces are threads that the writer is, you know, in terms of how he tells the story, weaving together for us, I think in a pretty darn skillful way. Well, Saul was, back to verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because Yahweh was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him, a command, gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. What do you think Saul's hoping for? Y'all yeah. <laughs> are really smart. <laughs> go, go, go. Um, in everything he did, he had great success, because why? Yahweh was with him. The Lord was with him. Exactly. Which would only further Saul's anxiety and fear. When Saul saw how, how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Oh, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So David is the hottest ticket in town. And Saul is yesterday's news. Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter Mirab. I'll give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of Yahweh. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. I will let the Philistines do it. Yeah, you got it. It's a way, you know the old saying about keep your, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? Yeah, we go. He's got daughters. You think he's worried about his daughters? If you think he's worried about his daughters, no, this, that is not this world. This world is not worried about daughters. Yeah, he did. He made that promise. Yep. Did you think he asked her? No, that's okay. So just, just don't think, I, I just want you to understand that women, you know, even in Jesus' day, women were second-class citizens. They had the, vert, the status really legally in the eyes of the community as, as slaves. Um, okay? Um, I'd always tell you, I just remember this lecture I listened to once. It was about... Roman society and culture, and the title of it was just said everything. It said women and slaves, less than human. Yeah, I mean it's sad, but you'll 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 see that. Don't you just got to understand the 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 status of women in this world, um, and the women don't they don't have choices. It, they can it can happen, but it's it's surprising when it does. Yes. I think he knows. My, my reading from a couple chapters ago is that he knows. He knows what he did. I mean, he knows he went ahead. Because he says, well, look, what the first one was when maybe he went ahead with the sacrifices and didn't wait for Samuel. And I mean, he goes, well, I, I, I just, didn't, just didn't wait. I think he, it's easy if you're, I mean, I've never been king. But if, <laughs> if you're a king, it's easy to convince yourself that 
you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a mistake here and there. Does, how much does it really matter? How much does God really care? Maybe something like that, right? That's probably something we, uh, we still have a problem with. See, we, we, uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, when we look at our own lives and the things we do that might displease God, we say, well, they're all kind of little, little tiny things and how much could God really care? But then when we look at other people who probably do similar things, Look what that person is doing, right? When we rank order sins, we always put at the bottom of the list the sins we commit. Ah, they're not that big a deal. Uh, Yeah. The uh, French people have a saying about about creation. Uh huh. So, Jane is saying there's a, yes, Jane is saying, the French have a saying, going back to the story in Genesis, which, in which the man is created first and then the woman is made from Adam's rib, that, you know, um, every masterpiece, for every masterpiece there's a rough draft. So the man would be the rough draft and then you would get it right, which is surprisingly how much I have fun teaching that story. Because I often say, you know, okay, so the woman was created from the man, so you know, now God's going to get it right. I think I've said that before, haven't I, Patty? I have indeed. Okay, yay. Okay, yes. In the verse 17, at the end, it says, let the Philistines do that. Yes. Servants. So what, so what happened when the battle was over? Did the Philistines all come over and say, okay, line us up, give us our little jobs here? No, they ran, they ran for the sea. They ran for their homes, and the Israelites went and tracked them down. Of course, they, they made a promise they probably had no intention of keeping. What do you think? Yeah, probably something like that. You know, in the ancient world, it was common for conquerors to enslave those who were conquered. That's where a lot of slaves came from in the ancient world. You would enslave the peoples that you had conquered. But in terms of not keeping the commitment Goliath made, well, that's not surprising to me because these people are fighting. They're going to keep fighting. Um, That fighting with the Philistines, the tensions with the Philistines is a key part of everything that's kind of moving forward in this and will for a very long time. Okay, very good. So, Saul comes to David and says, I'm going to give you my daughter Mirab in marriage, without referencing the earlier promise. And David said to Saul, Who am I? What is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the, ki- the king's son-in-law? Right, David, ah, come on, I'm, I'm not worthy. That, right, that's basically it. I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. I'm not worthy to take your daughter Mirab in marriage. So, when the time came for Mirab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was, I'll add a word, instead given to marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Okay, so she's just given wherever Saul wants to give her. But look at the next line. 
Now David's, now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. All right. Isn't it kind of fun to have romance enter the picture here? <laughs> and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Of course he was. I mean, you know, okay, this is, this is going to work out great. My daughter will be happy. I'll give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Hmm. That's Saul. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. <laughs> then Saul ordered his attendants. Now look, shh, shh, this is, this is speak, speaking quietly. Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king really likes you. And all of his attendants, well, they love you. Now become his son-in-law. Right? So Saul's working behind the scenes with the other people in the court to get them on the team of getting David to marry Michael. Do I see a hand back here? Yes, sir. It's hard to believe that the masterpiece could become a snare. <laughs> <laughs> could be, but Saul's going to use her as one. Does she want to be a snare? No. She loves him. Take it to face value. She loves him. Her story is going to continue for a long time, and it's a tragic story. You'll see. You'll, you know, it gets very, very sad, very poignant um, later in, in the book of Samuel. So, verse 23. So they, this is the royal court people, repeated these words to David, and David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. What's underlying that is when he says I'm a poor man, he says I don't have anything to offer as a bride price. This would be a, 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 bag, of, a bag of cash. Not, they, don't, they didn't actually have cash at this time, but a bag of jewels or gold or whatever that he would give the king in exchange for the daughter's hand in marriage. Well, when Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, he has a plan, say to Saul, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins. <laughs> this is a kind of reminder that this is a different world than you and I inhabit in, in and around 75093, right? Oh, yeah. The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. And then the writer is thinking to himself, well, maybe the reader's a little dense, so I'll tell him. <laughs> Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Yeah. Because the David, this is all I want. Just go get me a f the foreskins of a hundred Philistine warriors, and that's the price for marrying my daughter. I don't know. I'm glad that didn't come up, Patty, in our courtship. <laughs> it's something 
It just, it just, it's just like, wow! I told you, you know, it's, yeah. Oh, man. Wait, wait. Okay, so let's just make sure we understand. Is there, why does he want, why does he want, why does he want the foreskins? Because each one proves the guy's dead. Or you're not getting it. <laughs> right? What else? They're Gentiles. They're Gentiles. Not, not some, some, you know, Jewish sucker who, you know, fell into a trap. Nope. Got to go get them. That's, that's going to be the proof. That's ironclad. That's like DNA in our world. Well, when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. He wanted to do it. Okay, I'll do this. So before the allotted time elapsed, Saul even put the poor kid on a clock. <laughs> I mean, really. David took his men with him and went out and killed how many? 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. Overachiever, exactly. Don't you hate him? You overachiever, you. You're just making everybody else look really bad. Ugh. So they counted out the full number to the king. So what? So they bring in this bag and they open it up in front of the king and they're counting it out. Boom, 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 boom. Wow. Yes, Jim? You're wound up again today. Am I? It's not me. It's not me. It's these, it's these stories. It's not. It's not me. They counted them out. I have, I have a few other bits I could do, but I'm going to restrain myself. They're going through my mind right now, and I'm censoring myself here. So, no, no, no. Then Saul gave him his daughter in marriage. So who is David's first wife? Michael. Michael. Put that away in your memory bank. Michael is David's first wife. Verse 28. When Saul realized that Yahweh was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Everything Saul has tried has backfired on him. Not a hundred dead Philistines, two hundred dead Philistines. Saul kills thousands, David kills tens of thousands. He sends them out on all these dangerous missions. Every one of them is enormously su successful. Everything he tries fails. Now we know that, now he knows that his daughter, Michael, loves David. So let me just make another observation about wives and daughters in the ancient world. In, in the eyes of society, society, they led very private lives. And they didn't really have much worth in that way. Like I said, the lecture, even about Greco-Roman society, women and slaves, dot, dot, less than human. But on a personal level, forgetting the societal view of women, do you think that's how it always was? 
now it wasn't because we look at letters we look at tombstones we look at engravings of various kinds and we often see that a wife or a daughter of course was much loved by the husband or the father and the rest so even though women were seen as having little worth in this world that is utterly dominated by men it doesn't mean that Saul didn't love Michael I think he does love Michael I wouldn't say otherwise I think he wants the best for her in his terms right in the way he sees things you can't expect him to be a man of the 21st century nor is she a woman of the 21st century but I would not assume that he doesn't care what happens to her. On one level, it's worked out well. Michael loves David. Did it say that David loved Michael? File that away too. Michael loved David. And now she's married to him. But it's just one more piece on the pile of the reasons why Saul is afraid of David. All right, and he will remain David's enemy the rest of his days. And those, those are still many, many, many days. Did David know? Did David know what? That Saul had it out for him. I think when those spears came <laughs> hurling toward him, <laughs> he might have. I don't know. Maybe he just thought... Maybe he just chalked that up to Saul's madness. But I think if he hasn't figured it out before now, he is going to figure it out. What's going to happen is David's going to have to go on the run. He's gonna, a large portion of what's coming is David on the run. Yes, I know. And Saul doing the chasing. Okay. Yep. No, it's, 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 it's not too far ahead. So, all right. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officer, and his name became well known. So, right, there's, a, there's some iteration here, reiteration and stuff. That's, that's all wonderful. Now, verse 19. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David, and he warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. So what's happening now? This is big. Jonathan is conniving with David against Jonathan's own father, Saul. Not only conniving with David against the king, but conniving with David against Jonathan's father. And I think there are two reasons for that. One, because of Jonathan's affection for David. And the second is because I think Jonathan knows that David hasn't done anything wrong. There's no reason to be for Saul to be after David in this way. David has done everything the king has asked him to do. 
He's been the king's great general. The fact that the king is insecure as he should be because he knows that Samuel said your kingdom's taken from you because he knows that um, it, 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 it's created this situation. And so now Jonathan is going to basically work with David against Saul. Your brother-in-law's now too. They're brother-in-law's now because Michael is Jonathan's sister. So they're brothers-in-law. Wow. Verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. That's worth underlining. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. All true, right? All true. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine, Goliath. Yahweh won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it, and you were glad. Why then would you, would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? True, 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 true. The right question. And Jonathan can put it to the king. Why can Jonathan put it to the king? Because the king's his dad, and he is the prince, and he's the first in line, and he probably feels comfortable saying things to the king that other people might not. Because in this world, the kings have absolute power. There's no, you know, it would be... In, in 1215, the, you know, in England, um, the subjects, the powerful subjects of King John made him sign the Magna Carta. He wasn't happy about it. But didn't he? He had to. He had to. He had to do it, and it began to establish. It began to chip away at the absolute power that a king had. So, but that's more than two thousand years later than David and Saul. Saul is. Saul has the power. So Jonathan confronts him, though. Verse six. Saul listened. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. Oath is a strong word, isn't it? Yes. The but is because oaths can be broken. Yes. You know what Jesus said about oaths? Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Right? Wise. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Oaths are a an attractive, you know, it's often an attractive garment, one, you know, covering up dishonesty. And I fear that's, that's what's going on here. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath, as surely as Yahweh lives. Well, there we go. That's sure. David will not be put to death. Okay. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole, the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Okay, so what's happened? Jonathan has patched things up. He's patched things up. He, he put David out in the field somewhere, kind of in hiding so they couldn't find him to kill him, and then he's confronted his father, and he's patched him up, and he's brought David back in, and now David's going to be playing the, <laughs> the harp again, I guess. Yeah, exactly. 
Verse 8, once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. He is something. He and his men. Why? Because God is with them. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but, three simple letters, but, an evil spirit from Yahweh came on Saul, and as he was sitting in his house, house with his spear in his hand, and while David was playing the liar, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night David made good his escape. So what is it saying to us? You know, um, it's, it's, you know, there's are, are those that would say, well, did this really like happen twice or what? Yes, it happened twice. Saul descended into the spiritual darkness and he tries to pin David against the wall and all kinds of things intervene. And Jonathan is gone and he's patched things up and then Saul is sunk again and the king has again tried to kill David, thrown the spear at him. And so now David had to make good his escape. Well, okay, so what is to be done? I mean, now the king's going to be after him, after him, after him. So Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. So he sends lookouts. Sends a couple guys over in a car with some coffee and stuff so they can stay awake all night. They're going to park outside the house and they're going to park and they're going to watch because in the morning, David's going to get it. Off with his head. But Michael, David's wife, warned him. So Jonathan has chosen David over his father, and now Michael is choosing David over her father. Wow. She says to him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you're going to be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and he escaped. So we aided his, she aided his escape. So just picture it. You need a picture to understand what's going to happen in this, this, this whole story here. He lowers him, she with him lowers himself out. Maybe they tied sheets together or something and lowered himself out the window down to the ground during the night and very quietly makes his departure, leaving her alone in the house waiting for the morning when the men are going to come in order to kill David. Verse 13. Then Michael took an idol. Now an idol is a figurine or mini statue or bigger statue of some pagan god or goddess. Now, so the disturbing part of this story, in many ways, which certainly the Jewish listeners, the Israelite listeners to this, would have picked up on, is the fact that she has an idol. She shouldn't have idols. What does God say in the Ten Commandments? Don't make idols. Don't make any graven images of me. Right? Nothing. Nothing like that. The Jews were totally committed to that, except when they weren't. 
<laughs> you know, and like their official um, architecture and stuff, you see a lot of geogra geographic symbols and stuff, but you don't see any depictions of trees. They just stayed away from graven images of so many kinds. But the great tragedy of Israel is that they could not divorce themselves fully from the pagan idols and pagan gods and goddesses that surrounded them. Because there's, there's all kinds of people in these lands. So then Michael took an idol and she laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. Now, how many of you have tried this with your parents? <laughs> Now's the time to confess, you know? Yeah, yeah, I did that once. You remember the movie Ferris Bueller? Yeah, yeah Ferris, Ferris did a very elaborate job of this, right? Made the hole under the covers and the, the little weight that would play the recording and answer the door and all this other stuff. Well, that's sort of what Michael's doing. So she takes the idol, she lays it in the bed, she covers it up, and she puts goat's hair at the top so it kind of looks like maybe a person's there. Well... As long as they don't look too closely, right? <laughs> when Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, Oh, he is ill. He is ill. No school today. He is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told him, Bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. Okay, so what's happened? The men, the, the assassination party, has been turned away from Michael, the king's daughter, who says he's sick. They've gone back to tell the king, and the king now says, go back, bring me David in the dang bed. In the dang bed. I want all of it. I want the bed, I want David, I want the whole thing. I'll kill him myself. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head of it was some goat's hair. So Saul said to Michael, Why? Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, He said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? So her out is what? To lie. To, to tell her father that David threatened me. That if I didn't go on like this, it was going to be off with my head. Yeah. Right? Okay. I mean, I guess kind of understandable, given the ruse that she has just pulled. She does. She's afraid to tell him that she simply loved David and helped him get away. Well, if you were David, where would you head? You're out there. You've snuck off in the night. You know, you're going to go back to your home with Jesse and your brothers where everybody knows you live? No, probably not. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel in Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. And word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, this is the Samuel 
This is no ordinary guy. This is the Samuel. Right? The Samuel, the last great judge of Israel. The Samuel. The Spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. So they go up there and they get sucked into the whole thing that the prophets are doing then. They're up there, they're maybe it's some sort of ecstatic language or whatever it is exactly that they're doing and the men are caught up in it, right? So Saul was told about it and he sent more men. And they arrive and what happens to them? They get sucked in too. So now they're prophesying too. So now there's this huge group of men wandering around prophesying. Meanwhile, David is just fine. <laughs> right? Finally, Saul himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Secu, a cistern being a well. And he asked, okay, where are Samuel and David? Over into Naoth at Ramah, they said. So, oh, what's going to happen when he gets there? So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. Ah, even on him. And he walked along prophesying till he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked. Can you imagine what people thought when they saw such things? <laughs> he lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, like there's this saying that goes around town, is Saul also among the prophets? So, wow. So when we come back next week, we're going to pick up there because now we're into a, another part of the saga of David and Jonathan. Um, and Saul, of course, has been frustrated in his hunt for David. But that hunt for David is going gonna, is gonna to become sort of the driving, the driving force in the coming chapters. And you're going to meet some pretty remarkable people. One is a woman named Abigail. She's, she's one of my favorites from the, from the David saga. So <coughs> with that, let me see if there's any other questions that y'all have. I think we just witnessed the first revival. Just witnessed the first revival. It probably sounds like some revivals that have happened here. You know, in the early 19th century, in upper New York State and eastern Pennsylvania, there were big revivals, and in these revivals that were supposedly the Holy Spirit taking everybody, people were falling on the ground, they were barking, screaming, hollering, laughing, all kinds of what you might call, what people sometimes call ecstatic behavior. They're, they've given themselves over to something, at least, but it probably looked a bit like that. I went to a few revivals as a kid, with my next door neighbor, Ray Dancy. He is a Baptist. I was an Episcopalian, we didn't do revivals. But he was a Baptist and they did, so I went to a few, went to a few of those with Ray. One time Ray asked me to come to a Ku Klux Klan meeting. This is North Louisiana, 1963, yeah. Didn't go, didn't go, glad I didn't go, um, but yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. It was a different world back then. So, let's see. Anything else? Patty? Okay, sure. 
Um, so just a reminder that tomorrow night down here at 6.30, Officer Chris Bianas will be here from the Plano Police Department for his third presentation here at St. Andrew. And the first two were excellent and well attended. And this one is about personal safety. So I hope you'll think about coming. It's at 6.30 down here. Coffee and dessert. Coffee. Oh, coffee and dessert. Okay. <laughs> coffee, coffee, and, coffee and cookies. And it should last about, by 7.30 he should be finished. Okay. All right, anything else? Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, what is the part of this story that you would like us to really lay on our hearts? Is it, is it that David trusts you, that we are called to trust you? Um, David's a virtuous young man who strives to do right, strives to do as the king wants done. May we be people of faith. We may, may we be people in whom others see, you know, the virtues lived out. For that is the life to which you have called us. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.